Welcome to Synergy Mindset Coaching. I am your host, Gina, a certified life coach, bringing you a community designed to inspire your mindset and help you take daily action towards your goals so you may achieve your dreams. Have you ever felt that there's something missing inside of you? Many people strive to fill that emptiness with money, fame, fashion. Our guest today was an adventurer and he is sharing the story of how he had a light bulb moment thousands of miles away from home in war. He was one tough adventurer as a young man and during this interview he's both courageous and vulnerable sharing the journey that led him into a meaningful life of helping and serving others. Stay tuned at the end for a short message from your host. Welcome to Synergy Mindset Coaching. I have been doing a little bit of research for a book that I'm working on and I came across John's work. I couldn't stop reading and kept going further down the rabbit hole. John is living a life on the edge and is an author, adventurer, former diplomat and citizen activist. He said, I found the meaning I sought in service, in helping solve significant problems and in making life better for other people. He's also part of a nonprofit, Giraffe Heroes, encouraging today's heroes and training tomorrow. They're compassionate risk takers, largely unknown, people who have the courage to stick their necks out for the common good in the U.S. and around the world. And they say when they tell their stories over social and traditional meaning, media, sorry, others are moved to stick their neck out too, helping solve significant public problems important to them. And you guys, today I'm just so excited to share both John's story and his expertise. Welcome to the podcast, John. Oh, thank you very much, and uh, I, and I'm honored. Uh, and uh, did I really do all that stuff? My goodness. <laughs> uh, I'm, se- I'm 76 now, so a lot of that is in my rearview mirror. But nonetheless, here I am. Well, here we go, because reading through your website, one can end up staying up till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, following through all your stories. Tell people a little bit about your life today and fill in some of the blanks for us, please. I, I still work for the Giraffe Heroes Project. That's uh, the nonprofit that my wife, Anne, started way back in the early 1980s, whose purpose is to get people to stick their necks up, get involved in solving public problems, making life better for other people. And uh, now I work mostly, almost entirely, on the global aspects of it. We've started affiliates all over the world. There are now nine of them. And I, uh, I, I'm actively supporting them. I go visit these places and set up um, uh, basically giraffe projects in these foreign countries. And these are all mostly in countries that really need um, a, a, a powerful examples of change, change makers, and who need hope. Um, for example, uh, in the last two years, uh, we've been most active in Zimbabwe. Um, where, as you, your listeners may well know, the country was run for 30 years by a corrupt dictator, Robert Mugabe, who finally was forced out. But he, he was forced out in some degree because of pressure brought by giraffe heroes. We, now, we now have a group, a cadre of 83 people in Harare in Zimbabwe, and they're marching in the streets and they're blogging and they're doing all kinds of stuff. And now they're active in getting the new guy, the new, the new government, to finally establish a government for Zimbabwe that that's free and fair and nonviolent uh, and can finally bring some prosperity to an otherwise naturally rich country. 
And you ask what I do. Well, I, I sit here where I'm sitting now looking into my computer using Skype or perhaps email. And I'm in the middle of all this. I, I, I don't direct it. They direct it. But I, I have a lot of experience in political change. So I give them examples. I use my, uh, my, uh, all, all of my web uh, expertise and social media contacts to help um, them uh, create a new Zimbabwe. It's dangerous work. Sticking your necks out in Zimbabwe now, you, you can get thrown in jail or worse. Anyway, I'm in the middle of a revolution, and I'm doing it from Whidbey Island, Washington. Pretty exciting. Now, in order to tell us how you got involved in this work, I would imagine we might go back just a little bit in your story. Yes, of course. I I, I didn't start out doing good, I'll tell you that. I, I started out, as you sort of indicated in what you read, as an adventurer. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when I was a teenager, um, I, and when I was 17, I went to sea on a cargo ship to the Far East. This was before you know, container ships and all the Ottomans. They, these are these are places. These are ships where there was a crew of fifty or sixty really tough guys. And here was a high school kid, and going my uh, as a member of the crew to the Far East for the summer. These guys were wonderful because they knew that they could teach me lessons about life that I would never learn in college. <laughs> I don't need to be more explicit, but you get the point. That here I spent the summer with all these guys. Uh, there was a bar fight, there was this, there was that, and I, I, I really got hooked on adventure, uh, which was not a bad thing in itself, but most of the adventures I then sought from there on were uh, had to do with um, a lot of physical violence. Some, it was just me and nature. For example, I got deeply into um, crack mountain climbing, and I was with a group of young men that uh, made the first direct descent up the north wall of Mount McKinley, now Denali. It's a climb so difficult and so dangerous. It was the first ascent that no one's ever done it since. So there was a lot of mountain climbing, hanging from ropes and stuff. But then um, after college, I hitchhiked around the world and I had a pass from a press pass from the Boston Globe newspaper um, and uh, I reported on wars as a war correspondent, you know, whatever wars there were along the way, which in those years, as I remember, was, uh, was Cyprus, uh, Eritrea, Laos, and Vietnam. Wow. And increasingly, I would just walk into dangerous situations where I could, maybe should have been killed, but I kept walking out of them again. So I came to the conclusion that I was indestructible. Well, I, <laughs> 26 years old, whatever. Um, but then uh, I realized, since I wasn't independently wealthy, that to keep up this habit of adventuring, I had to uh, I had to find a way of making a living out of it. And I decided that what I would do would be to join the U.S. Foreign Service. But I I I I, I fixed it so that the foreign service I joined was not where you'd wear a fancy suit and work out of an embassy in Paris, but the kind of foreign service where you work in jungles and deserts. Uh, sometimes people are shooting at you and you're starting revolutions or stopping them. Um, and it, it was perfect because now I was getting paid for doing the kind of stuff that I'd always loved doing. Um, I was in the middle of the first revolution in Libya, for example, 1969. And everybody else was freaking out. But when I was in the streets of Tripoli and 
there were overturned cars burning in the streets and howling mobs. I I couldn't have been happier. I thought it was terrific. <laughs> and then I went from the frying pan to the fire, so to speak, and, and asked the State Department to send me to the most dangerous place they could in Vietnam during the war. And they did so. I was uh, stationed in Hue, which was famous because of the Tet Massacre, 1968. Um, I was the uh, advisor to the mayor in Hue, which is just 50 miles short of the line that at that time in history divided North Vietnam from the South. Mm -hmm. And it was really dangerous place to be. And uh, in the spring of 1972, um, the city was surrounded by North Vietnamese forces and almost overrun. And there was a huge battle going on and there were no more American troops. American troops have well, you all and your most of your listeners are probably too young. But 1972, <laughs> the American troops were rapidly leaving Vietnam. So that up in uh, in the northern part, what was then South Vietnam, there were no more American troops. It was just a couple of us civilians. And we were in a city surrounded by um, thousands of North Vietnamese troops on three sides. And the only defense was South Vietnamese Army, which wasn't very good. And uh, American air power jets from carriers off the coast that were bombing the oncoming enemy. But the it, it was during a period of heavy clouds, so the planes couldn't fly, and the North Vietnamese got closer and closer. And finally, I realized that one of the key, key things that was a problem was that the city was panicking. And in a panicked city, you can't create civil defense. You can't get ammunition and supplies moving. Uh, people were, were streaming south. Refugees were coming in, a quarter million of them from the north. And so I decided that the, that the well, I could see that the cause of a lot of the mayhem was deserters from the South Vietnamese army who were terrorizing the civilian population of Way in the middle of this battle. It was terrible. Hmm. So um, I decided without any idea if it would work or not, to urge the mayor to set up a firing squad, and he did so. Even though I knew that um, he, the firing squad would be shooting deserters who were basically teenagers who were probably dragooned off their patties like two weeks before. They weren't innocent, but then again, they were still boys and scared out of their wits. Mm -hmm. And here I was thinking that by shooting a bunch of them, we might get other Vietnamese to start to do better at shooting still other Vietnamese, that is to say the North Vietnamese. And I was doing all this, never believing in the war, never believing America could win that war. I was over there in Vietnam just for the adventure. My home was 8,000 miles away. And it suddenly hit me, well, what was I doing? What was I doing? I was then almost 30 years old and I had developed no moral sense of examining what I was doing with my life. Adventure was everything. Mm -hmm. And now some people were going to die just because I was over there having an adventure. And it finally got me in the middle of this battle and I remember just weeping. Um, I wasn't scared. I was just like, if I was scared, I was scared of what was happening to me that I had grown up without a soul at that point. Mm -hmm. It really started changing my life. Uh, and in this particular episode is that the next day dawned bright and clear and American jets off the carriers obliterated the 
advancing North Vietnamese army, so I, my life was saved. Wow. But I came back and um, had to wrestle with all this. They didn't know what PTSD was in those days, but that's what I had. I would walk on the shadow sides of the streets in Palo Alto, California, to avoid sniper fire. I mean, I was really messed up, and I was examining moral questions that I should have examined a decade earlier. And gradually, I, I began to, my life began to change. Um, just fast forwarding a bit, uh, in, in the mid 70s, um, late in 77, 76, 77, I was sent to the United Nations. And I finally realized that I could take all the stuff that had made me such a great um, actor, if you will, uh, in wars and revolutions, uh, and put it to doing good in the world. I mean, I was strong, I was tough, I was agile, I could shoot straight. I mean, I, I was someone you didn't want to mess with. And now I could take whatever skills I learned, tough guy stuff, and actually try to do good with it. And I did. I don't know if they'll engrave it on my tombstone, but I'm really proud of one thing I did in those years, and that's helped end apartheid in South Africa. I took enormous risks because there are a lot of people that didn't want to end apartheid. Uh, because they wanted to keep shipping guns to the South African regime. And what I did at the United Nations stopped the flow of guns to the South African regime, and that eventually ended, helped end apartheid. And I did other things, too, and I began to see that I had found a whole new meaning to my life. A long answer to your question, but you did ask. I finally discovered that, that there was something else to life, adventure, and, and it was doing good. It was it was. It was service. It was, it was getting into the into the what really made my life meaningful. What made my life meaningful was not physical adventure. What made my life meaningful was solving difficult public problems, thereby saving people's lives, making people's lives better. And it was a huge revelation to me. Huge revelation. And it, it, not only that, but ironically so, it was also the biggest adventure I ever had in my life. I mean. Ending apartheid was one heck of an adventure. I had to go behind my, the backs of my own government. I had to bamboozle people in Congress. I had to lie to people of the United Nations. It was, uh, I, it was wonderful. <laughs> it, was, it was complex and it was a real adventure. And so um, that's uh, that's that's what happened. And it all began with that battle in uh, in Vietnam, and it was uh, kind of cemented. By, by being at the United Nations and discovering that all this tough guy stuff, all this John Wayne stuff that I wanted to be could actually be good if I would just put it to a good purpose. So I did, uh, but then I realized I couldn't stay in the foreign service. I'd made too many enemies. There are a lot of people that didn't particularly want to do good and they were out to get me. Not only that, Ronald Reagan was then president and I knew that I could no longer have the leeway that I did under Jimmy Carter and my then boss, Andrew Young. So I quit. And um, very soon thereafter, met a woman named Ann Medlock, who was an editor in New York City, who had just started the Giraffe Heroes Project, which, as you explained, is all about finding people who are sticking their necks out and telling their stories so that other people will be inspired to stick their necks out, too. She started in New York City, of course, so she would find New Yorkers who were sticking their necks out. They, they, they were working on all kinds of New York City issues. Um, 
all the stuff that's on the first page of the newspaper. I mean, all this bad stuff. These people were making a difference. They were standing up and trying to make a difference. And Ann would tell their stories and get their stories told. In those days, it was over 45 RPM records, little records. And <laughs> paper press readings. This is in the early 1980s. And so I thought she was kind of nuts, but because uh, I didn't think that just telling stories could actually change people. I thought to change people, you had to give wonderful speeches, which I could do. Um, but nobody seemed to really want to hear my speeches. Instead, they all flocked to Anne and his new Giraffe Heroes project. And what really changed things was that I fell in love with her. She fell in love with me. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden, uh, whatever, what she was doing became vastly more important for me to look at. And I soon realized that she was right, that there's no more powerful engine for changing people's behavior than role models, examples. That's what the Giraffe Project was doing. So I joined her. And beginning in 1984, Anne and I have been running the Giraffe Heroes Project ever since. And uh, it's been one heck of an adventure. And now we, we've we now uh, honored over 1,500 Giraffe Heroes. We have, like I said, global affiliates now, nine of them scattered around some of the most difficult and dangerous places in the world. We have created in the 1990s a, a K through 12 uh, curriculum. Uh, helping kids develop lives as courageous and compassionate citizens that is reaching kids all over the English-speaking world. And now we have an operation in Argentina where we're doing the same thing in Spanish. And so we just keep uh, we just keep building it, looking for more opportunities. Um, and of course, using modern technology, no longer 45 RPM records and print. <laughs> but we're getting pretty darn good at Facebook and Instagram and you name it, LinkedIn websites. Oh, by the way, if you don't already, the website for the project is giraffe.org. Very easy. So your listeners can can get a lot more details there about what we're doing. So I don't have to tell you all these stories now. Well, I just started homeschooling my son three weeks ago. And I think that curriculum you just mentioned would be such a gift to add to the educational curriculum that they provide. Yeah, well, a lot of other teachers think so, too. And so I'm, uh, we're constantly in contact with teachers. And uh, what we've done now, after, after developing the, the, uh, the curriculum, it, it, it took a lot of work. And it took, we got over, oh, I guess over $2 million from foundations for a, a decade's work to do it. Wow. And then we began s selling it to try to recoup some of that money. Um, but then after a while, we said, what the heck? I mean, let's give it away. And so... Wow. We took the major parts of it, the section for little kids, K through two, and the section for young teens called um, uh, It's Up to Us. And we put it on our website as a free download. So any teacher listening to this podcast can go on that giraffe website, go on to resources, and they'll scroll down. And they'll see the free downloads, and they can download what is perhaps, I still think, the best service learning civic education curriculum on the planet. They can get it for free. That is incredible. I want to thank you for your hard work on putting that service out into the world. Well, it was part of this vision, part of this meaning. And um, I said the most important thing in my life was meaning. And I that was true beginning with uh, that was true from the very beginning. And although, as I explained in the beginning, my meanings were pretty shallow. I mean, getting shot at and climbing mountains. Uh, but since then, the meaning has been, as I explained, 
um, about helping other people. And, I, and that's the strategy for my life. And I'm now 76, and that strategy is not going to change. It's, it makes my life meaningful. It, it puts joy in my heart. It makes me feel like my life is really worth living. And um, I don't get a lot, I don't get any, hardly any money out of it. But what I do get is all kinds of feedback from people all over the world that the giraffe work or maybe one of my books, maybe one of my speeches, whatever, has helped them turn their life around or help them solve an enormous problem that's, that has really made things different for their community or their country. And I read these things or hear these things and I say, yep, I'm doing okay. I'm six, haven't got that long to go, but I'm doing okay. I've had different veterans reach out from time to time. And it's interesting because my vision for the podcast was to help moms. But there's, like you said, a lot of people that have PTSD from Iraq and 9-11. And I'm just wondering, is it finding this service that helped you overcome the PTSD looking back? Or how are you helping people in today's present time to make that happen? Yeah, the answer is yes. It's uh, it's. I came back from Vietnam really confused, and the PTSD just made it worse. Uh, the, the, the walking to avoid snipers in Palo Alto, California, terrible nightmares, whatever. But something else happened there too in California. I, I, I'll mention it because um, it helps answer your question. Um, I, uh, I and then my then uh, first wife and I went to a couple's retreat because not only was I messed up, our marriage was messed up. Um, and it was a couple's retreat in the Santa Cruz Mountains south of San Francisco. And it went on for five days. Quite good. Quite good. Um, and um, a core of it was and every person recognized the, the ma masculine and the feminine principle in themselves. Uh, psychologists call it the uh, animus and the anima. Anyway, it basically is like I'm a male, but there's a there's a there's a, a, a female part of me that's that stereotypically is softer, sees connections better, etc. Uh, and um, I didn't recognize that at, at all. So I'm with this retreat, and on the last day. Um, the leader of the retreat took all the men aside. It was a couple's retreat. And there were about 25 of us men, and we were taken to a separate cabin and uh, ostensibly to talk about, you know, sexual things, whatever, uh, that we probably wouldn't do with all the wives and, and partners present. Instead, this guy starts the session by asking us, okay, after five days now, listening to each other, Knowing what we're talking about in animus and anima, that there's no there's no baggage to either of these terms, just the male principle and the female principle. Who do you think is the most feminine man at this retreat? And so my mind immediately went to you know some other kind of you know um, seemingly to me if effeminate graduate students or accountants or whatever. Instead, every man in that room, without any hesitation, pointed to me. Wow. Oh, wow. And here I said, you know, wait a minute. I spent five days. I told you about the war in Vietnam. I told you about what I did in, in, in Libya. I told you about all my mountain climbs. Up to that point, I've almost died a dozen times. I've been all kinds of really tough guy stuff. And you guys are accountants and graduate students, whatever. Some of you have probably never seen real life the way I've seen. I went on and on. It was rampage. 
they tried to talk me to me. I, I, I was, I wouldn't have none of it. And I went out of that cabin and I slammed the door behind me, just utterly furious that these idiots had failed to see who I was. I mean, I was John Wayne, for God's sake. Didn't you see that? And I ran uh, down these paths that circled the retreat house. And I got, maybe I ran for a mile or so. And then I just stopped and I sat down on the ground and I started sobbing and didn't stop for a long, long time. And I realized that these men are right, that there was a, quote, feminine side to me, and that there was a soft side to me. I mean, I had a little doll till I was seven years old. I wrote poetry to my mother for her birthday. And then it all got swept away by the John Wayne wannabe. Uh, and it was like I'd taken that softer side of my life, the, kind of the part of me that loved, that had relationships. Uh, the thought of other people that dealt with things in community. I put a large hunk of plywood on top of that and hammered it shut so nothing was left but the John Wayne part of me. And these guys were saying, basically, that's not you. You're a liar. They basically said that. You're a liar. You're making us think you're John Wayne, and we see something quite different. And how can you be so stupid? Why don't you see it too? Because your life would be a whole lot better once you realize the fullness of who you are. Sitting down on that trail, sobbing, I finally realized that. And so it was a combination of that episode of Vietnam and this episode at this retreat center that really changed things. And, and uh, it not only dealt with the PTSD, it, it changed my life in much more profound ways than that. Wow, I'm just tearing up listening to you share that. Thank you for that. After this, did the nightmares and all the things you were experiencing, did they go away? Yes, they did. They did. Uh, but I had a whole new, uh, it was like I was learning to walk again. I, I, I started with the simplest thing, which was my own two children. And I spent a lot more time with them. I started coaching their little league teams in Washington, D.C. I started hugging them and telling them stories. Just doing stuff with any loving father would do. And then I sort of timidly branched out, like to my coworkers and stuff. And then to, because I was still, then still, uh, still in the Foreign Service and began looking at foreign policy in terms of, of uh, what was right and what was compassionate and what was, would build justice and what would help end pain instead of the opposite of all those things. Uh, ending apartheid in South Africa turned out to be really one of the first targets that I I, uh, I handled, but there were others. Uh, for example, I worked hard for an opening to Cuba, tr uh, trying to lift the embargo uh, because, I, in my in my view, it was so silly to isolate Cuba instead of trying to deal with them um, a, a, as a neighbor. Uh, we had all we could think of was the Cuban Missile Crisis and. And I was shot down for that. I, uh, I even, <laughs> some of the risks I took were pretty outlandish. Uh, it turned out that the United Nations, some of my best friends were Castro Cubans. They were, they were in the, the Castro, of course, was the head of state of Cuba in those years in the mid seventies. And, um, I, and I, they became my best friends. Uh, in the beginning, it was because they were baseball fanatics. And so was I. So we would start talking about Red Sox pitching and stuff, whatever. 
But then I got to listen to their stories and the pain they felt, and their families felt because of the embargo. Yes, they were communists. Yes, I didn't agree with them uh, on a lot of political things, but they were fine people. In any case, part of my job was to ro go around the world to conferences where the leaders of the so-called third world, the developing world, would meet. In those days, it was people like Castro and Nehru and um, you know Kwame Nkrumah, people now, now dead. Uh, and I would go to these conferences. I wasn't allowed into the conference, of course, because I was the enemy. The third world then basically hated the United States for a lot of good reasons. Uh, war in Vietnam being one of them. Um, but I knew everybody there from the United Nations. So I would meet these delegates. I would hang out in bars in Jakarta or Delhi or Belgrade or whatever and, um, and talk to them in these bars. And part of my job was just to report back to my own government. I was kind of a spy, but I was an overt spy. Everybody knew what I was doing. Well, the other half was talking to these people about what they wanted for the world. And some of it was directly contrary to then American foreign policy. For example, a solution to the problem in Palestine and Israel, um, a, um, a better deal for the world's poor in terms of global economics and trade, etc. And so I would listen to them and I, they convinced me basically that they were right and that the US was wrong. And so I began sending messages appended to my official reports back to Washington, D.C., with a page or two of my own views about why I thought these people were right. We should listen to them. Of course, that made a lot of enemies, you can imagine, the hardcore people. They weren't Trumps then. There was something else than Trump, but still, there were a lot of really hardcore people, almost all men, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, who, uh, who, who thought I was crazy, soft, whatever. And uh, something incredible happened. I was in Belgrade, uh, and the, the Castro-Cuban, the Cuban delegation, of course, was also there. We were friends, and outside of the prying eyes in Washington, I could pal around with them and did. And they decided, they invited me to dinner, and we were all going to go to a, to a restaurant in Belgrade, on the other side of the tracks, if you know what I mean. No, no, no downtown fancy restaurants for these communists. Oh no. They wanted to find a real workers restaurant with, you know, tough cuts of beef and, and red beans and cheap red wine. So I said, sure. <laughs> the Cubans were given, because they were, you know, senior diplomats, the Cubans were given a black limo by the Yugoslav government so uh, they they really didn't want to take it, but protocol required that they they took this limousine, which you can imagine these 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 communists were driving around in a limousine, which just drove them crazy. So uh, we parked that limousine about three blocks away from the, where the restaurants were on the other side of the tracks and walked the rest of the way because there's no way they were going to be seen getting out of the limo. Going to this restaurant. And we start eating and we start drinking. And uh, after more than a few bottles of wine, we start talking politics. Long story short, I don't know who it was, maybe one of them, maybe it was me, but we literally took out the proverbial napkin, or maybe it was the back of a menu, right, or something like that. And we roughed out a deal. The deal was we would lift 
the sanctions, economic sanctions on Cuba, or most of them. In return for Cuba, in the person of Fidel Castro, helping us free our hostages in Iran. That was just a few months, if you remember from history, when the whole American embassy in Iran was overrun and 150 Americans were taken hostage and no one knew what was going to happen to these poor people. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they were stuck there and we had no way of talking because we, we couldn't talk to the Iranians. They hated us. But it turned out that Ayatollah Khomeini, the then Iranian leader, had close ties and a real friendship with Fidel Castro. And we knew that. I knew that. So the deal was Fidel Castro would go to Ayatollah Khomeini and be the front man, the interlocutor to get our people freed from jail in Iran. In return for, we would lift the economic sanctions or most of them. Okay. So that was clear. We wrote it down. So um, <laughs> the meal ends. <laughs> we all get back to New York. And I had almost forgotten because, oh, shit, we're all drunk. I mean, God. And um, <laughs> we're in the General Assembly Hall, and uh, Miguel, um, my closest counterpart, the deputy ambassador in the Cuban delegation, who wasn't supposed to talk to me any more than I was supposed to talk to him, he comes up to me in the General Assembly Hall, all kinds of people, and he says, hey, John. Oh, well, really, he spoke like uh, you might imagine with a heavy Spanish accent. Hey, Juan, hey, Juan, Juan. He said, I said what? what's going on? He says, <clears throat> the old man says we'll do it. The old man says we'll do it. And like an idiot, I said, what do you mean? Oh, no. He looks around because, like I say, he's not supposed to be talking to me. He says, damn it. He says, what we agree to in a restaurant in Belgrade, Castro says, Cuba will do this. I said, oh, my goodness. Actually, I said something stronger. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I went running across the street because now I had to fess up to my bosses of what I'd been doing. Oh, my. Obviously, I told them nothing about this meeting in Cuba. I would, you know, it was against all the rules. And, of course, I had no authority. I wasn't nearly high-ranking enough to propose a major element in foreign policy like that. Um, <laughs> So I didn't tell them, but now I had to tell them. So then they, they sent all this down to Washington, D.C., and it didn't take but a couple of hours for this incredibly angry response to come back from the State Department to the effect that there was no way, no how, that we were going to give Castro the credit for anything. And so we reject the deal. And you, Graham, uh, you're damn lucky we don't fire you because what you did was completely out of line. <sighs> so it didn't work, but I did it, and I took. I was willing to risk my career. I was willing to risk jail. Could have gone to jail for what I did. Um, I was willing to risk all that. Why? Because what was meaningful to my life was making life better for other people, and I was convinced. It wasn't only helping the Cubans. It was helping America. It was helping our image in Latin America. It was helping us in terms of regaining the respect of the rest of the world. So I saw nothing but good to what I was doing. Uh, and so uh, that's why I did it. And I, uh, it did, like I say, it didn't work, but it, it really taught me that if I was gonna do good in the world, it wasn't like I was a Pollyanna. There were a lot of people that don't wanna do good in the world, and I would cross a lot of them. Um, just like I crossed the arms dealers on South Africa a little later, 
And so it was dangerous stuff. And um, it took a certain amount of courage um, and ingenuity for me to do these things. Uh, but I did them. And uh, every time I did something like that, my life seemed to get more fuller and more meaningful. Then came the Giraffe Project, and it's sort of like all institutionalized. Now I had a, a whole organization along with Ann Medlock, and the two of us together had this organization whose whole purpose was to get people to do good in the world, to stick their necks out, to be courageous for the common good. And the rest of it has been like one adventure after the other. That was in, um, you know, a long time ago, 30 years ago. But we haven't quit. And we're still doing it right up to my Skype conversations with revolutionaries in Zimbabwe. We haven't quit. I don't intend to quit. Why should I? I mean, I can't retire. What do I retire from? Being alive. <laughs> the, only, uh, the only thing that slowed down for me is my body, which annoys the hell out of me. Because basically, I was a prof I was operating as a mountain climber at the level of a professional athlete. I mean, I was quite good. Um, but now, you know, I can get my back and hurt climbing up the stairs. <laughs> so it's like, uh, I wish yeah. part of me wishes I was young again. But the other part looks back and says, boy, you know, a whole lot of stuff. Now you're going to make a lot fewer mistakes because remember that don't do that again. Or remember that. <laughs> yeah, do that. <laughs> and so, uh, I blog, I write books, I give speeches, I do interviews like this one, all pointed in the same direction. It makes my life meaningful because what I'm doing is helping people stick their necks out to make the world a better place. Now, if someone's listening to this that hasn't climbed mountains and doesn't have all the adventure experience, but they've come to that same place. I get a lot of people every week tell me they're in that place of searching for meaning or purpose or their calling or, you know, their life's mission. How do you help people? Could you give them just like one tip to take that first step? That is such a good question, such a good question. I'm so glad you asked that because people ask me that same question. They say, wait a minute, you, you, got, you, you by your own admission, you, you're a cat with nine lives or 10 lives or whatever. <laughs> and I don't expect any stuff like that. Of course you don't. Um, but um, every one of us um, has a meaning for our lives. Uh, it's just that a lot of us don't see what it is or we got off on a wrong tangent. As we well know, looking around today, a whole lot of people think the meaning in their lives comes from having a whole lot of money or by having a whole lot of power or by shoving people around or whatever. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying, what I've discovered is that the true meaning for life is service. And most of us, a lot of us, don't get that. Some people, like I, had this piece of plywood hammered over their hearts. They just don't see it. But it, an honest searcher, like the people that come to you asking the question, people that come to me asking that question, I'm saying to this honest searcher, just keep looking. Just keep looking because I guarantee you there's a corner of the rug that you're meant to pick up. That's the way my wife Ann says it. There's a corner of the rug that you're meant to pick up and maybe nobody else. Um, why is that? Well, first of all, it's just because of who you are. It's what makes you passionate. And also, quite practically speaking, it's probably something that you're good at. So my, my sort of way to start looking at all this, because looking for meaning, as you know from my story, is, is, is it's a tough, long, sometimes lonely struggle. Mm -hmm. One thing you can do right away is just take a look at your attributes. I mean, there's a reason why a, a bear has claws and an eagle has wings. There's, there's a reason why 
A has, is terrific at math. Uh, the reason why B is a natural musician. There's a re reason this and the reason that. And so the first thing to do, the most simple thing you can do is just take an inventory. Just take an inventory. Write it all down. Okay, right. Well, I sure don't want to be a, uh, uh, work with animals. I hate, hate cats. Huh? Okay, fine. It's not animals. Well, what is it? All right. You know, I, I love foreign travel. Ah, you love foreign travel. Okay, well, let's poke around there. You know, so this is just the way to start people off is just to look at the most basic things of what they're good at, what they what they want to do. And one of the other exercises, an exercise that I have people do, because I do seminars on this stuff, I'll say, okay, take out a piece of paper and um, write down 10 things that you think might actually be really great for you to do. Just just 10 things. Absolutely no limits. You want to be a ventriloquist and work in a circus? Write it down. Um, you want to try to be a, a, a major league baseball player? Write it down. And so people struggle. And then uh, after they've done it, I don't even look at it. I say, all right, write in another 10. What do you mean write another 10? I can barely come up. want to write another 10. Sometimes I'll go to 100. Spend an hour so they have all these things. I says, okay, now you've got a list of 48 possibilities, and you struggled to come up with that list, and I pushed you really hard. Now, I want you to take a trusted friend, someone that knows you well, and I want that person to read each of these 48 options clearly, staring you in the face. And I want that person to look at your body language. And I want them to notice if anything changes if as they read that list. Because almost always, if you really want to be a ventriloquist or you really want to work with animals and the person says, um, uh, working with animals, your, your eyebrows go up, your, your, your facial muscles do something different. And then have this person that knows you well notice those one or two or maybe there's three things where clearly you were moved and don't even know you were moved. So um, that's another thing. So that's two basic, very basic things to do is take an inventory of your skills and do the simple exercise with a friend. Um, and, um, and the hard work, of course, is, you know, looking up at that proverbial starry sky and saying, okay, I've done this, I got some ideas. What is it that turns me on? What is it? What's, what's, what can't I put any words to? What is it? What is it? And, you know, in some cases you start like I did with my children. I say that I, I, I sometimes I talk with captains of industry types, you know, who are struggling to find their feminine side. Good. Um, I said, and uh, um, start go out in the backyard and, and uh, next time they're over and play catch with your grandchildren or, or write them a silly letter. Or, or offer to babysit for a day or something, because um, you love. Right? Of course, of course, of course, I love. Well, loving your kids is meaningful to you. Yes, of course, loving my kids and grandkids is meaningful. That's great. What a great place to start. You should love them. They love you. Wonderful. And that could be like it was for me coming back from Vietnam. It just first thing was being a coach to my daughter's little league team, a little t-ball little league team. Um, that was a a baby step for me, uh, and, and it, but it had to come before I could tackle much harder jobs, like trying to be compassionate to someone who I thought hated my guts. Um, 
but you know, you start, you start. And then if you're lucky, or maybe even if you're whatever, you, you, something happens where you try to actually act on these new revelations and, um, and there's a feeling, there's, there's a sense of joy, there's a sense of whoopee when you've done it. And it may have been hard, it may have been dangerous, but you didn't even notice how hard it was or how dangerous it was. That's the thing. Most of my life when I've done something that's been really meaningful, people say, how the hell did you do that? Weren't you scared? Scared, why? Well, it was dangerous. I didn't even notice. I didn't even <laughs> Oh, you've been such a good guest, and I've enjoyed this interview. I've taken more of your time than requested, and I'm just thanking you so much for sharing, being so open and vulnerable with us. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me. I, I look forward to getting a copy. It's fun. Oh, you bet. Before you go, do you have time to share with us your favorite book? And if you listen to podcasts, your favorite podcast? I don't do podcasts for the most part. Uh, uh, I, I probably should, but I, I don't. Favorite books? I don't read enough books. You know, most of the books I, I read are, are history books because uh, I think I can learn a lot from them. And uh, most of the things I read also are, are current events because I'm constantly asked for, well, I guess they're podcasts. I'm on um, TV a lot all, all over the world and uh, social media. Uh, one of my biggest, one of the things I do a lot of is actually um, uh, be a talking head for a Russia television Talk about making enemies. That makes a lot of enemies for me. Yeah, I'm on, uh, I'm, uh, I'm on um, Moscow. Uh, uh, you can, uh, you, you, uh, your uh, listeners can look at the press section of my website, which is uh, johngraham.org. And uh, they can, I, I put four or five of the episodes of me on radio, uh, on Russia television. And I do it. I do it because my view is there's got to be some balance between us and America and its, quote, enemies. And I've lived enough and I've had enough experience so that when the, 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 uh, the, the, the anchor, the Russian anchor tries to trip me up, well, Mr. Graham, isn't it true that America once again is a warmonger in Libya? You're constantly making war to peace-loving peoples. I say, well, yeah, I got, I got where you can come from that, but, you know, how about you guys? Uh, how about you in Chechnya? Uh, oh, Chechnya, how about that? Uh, how about uh, uh, what you did in condoning the gas attacks in Syria? Is that, does that count? Too? So I go back and, I, 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 and, and for some reason, they keep inviting me back. <laughs> I have a big following, I guess. And the idea of someone not just uh, parroting a party line is kind of unusual. So I give as good as I get. Thank you again for being here today. And I just want to give you the chance as we say goodbye, if there's any parting words of guidance that you would like to leave with our community. Nothing's more important than finding meaning for your life. And the best way to find it in a lasting way is through service. Welcome back. I would love to hear what your favorite part of the interview was. Mine was when he came to the realization that he found meaning in serving others. And I loved when he said he advises people to start at home, to start by playing with your kids or your grandkids, if your grandparents taking your kids more. It always seems to me like we're searching for great, big, complicated answers, and the solutions are really very basic and simple. If you like this interview, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you will receive new interviews each week on Mondays when they're available. 
please send me an email to share your comments or request a guest, a type of interview that you would like to hear. Gina at SynergyMindsetCoaching.com. Until next week, keep on taking one small step each day until you reach your next goal. See you next week.